Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. We are sorry to announce that the 1321 service to The Bunker via your podcast provider of choice is delayed by approximately 34,772 minutes. Podmasters Excursions apologises for this delay. Strikes, cancelled trains, driver shortages, Britain's railways were never perfect, but in recent months I felt ashamed at the state of the network. We were the first to build trains and tracks, but the railway is falling apart before our eyes. How on earth can we get out of this mess? And even more importantly, is anyone willing to do that? Christian Walmar knows more than most people about the railways. He's the author of British Rail, A New History. Welcome to the bunker, Christian. Good morning. What was your last train journey like? Not terrible. I actually did a cab ride, which uh, as a rail journalist I occasionally do, which means you sit at the front with a freight train driver and we were going from Wellingborough to the middle of the Peak District, some quarries somewhere in the middle of absolutely nowhere. It was fantastic fun, uh, which it always is in the cab. You see the railways in a way that you never do as a passenger. And I must say that it was noticeable even from that, a, a cab ride just kind of looking at the track, at what a poor state the railways are in. Not not because we broke down. Freight trains do get stopped by red lights more than uh, passenger trains. But no, not because of that. But because if you sort of stared out the front window the whole time, there's kind of old rails lying about. There's kind of communication boxes with the doors kicked in. There's weeds growing everywhere. There's lots of old rails which, instead of being taken over, are taken away, are then just dumped in what's called the forefoot, which is the bit between the tracks, and so on. And it just has a completely neglected air. And as you said in your introduction, it is kind of a source of shame. I mean, you go on railways in Europe, and they're not like that. They're, they're not kind of in that neglected state that uh, our network seems to have got itself in. We talk about nationalisation quite a lot as a possible solution to the railway's problems. Is renationalisation the way to go now? Well, this is a more complicated subject than uh, one might think, because actually much of the railway is already nationalised. So let's just look at what happened at privatisation. There were two different things that happened. One was that the railways were broken up into all sorts of bits and pieces. So there was the operations, the train operating companies, there was the infrastructure, which was then rail track, now network rail. There were the uh, leasing companies for the coaches and locomotives called the Roscoes, um, and all sorts of engineering bits and pieces. So that was all broken up, and then all of them were sold off. 
And gradually, some of this has come back in-house. So Network Rail, which replaced RailTrack, is now a government-owned company anyway. So that's been renationalized. And some of the train operating companies function badly and have ended up with what's called the operator of last resort, which is also government-owned. So chunks of the rail network are back in government hands. The trouble is that because it was broken up in so thoroughly and with so many different players and some of it you can't buy back because it's too expensive, like the the rolling stock companies. Uh, Any nationalisation is not going to be a recreation of British Rail. And that is, in a way, the problem, because British Rail, in its last uh, few years, and this is what I say in my book, British Rail, A New History, British Rail, in its last few years, was actually a very coherent, well-functioning, state-owned company. It was, for older listeners might remember, it was split into basically three passenger bits, intercity, network southeast, and regional railways. And these functioned really as kind of businesses. You know, they, they could make decisions about their timetables. They owned the uh, bits of infrastructure that they operated on. Uh, they owned their rolling stock and so on. And it was a very efficient way of running the railway. And what we'd really like to do is to get back to that, because that was actually not only efficient, it was very effective and, and performance was good and people were coming, coming back to the railways and so on. And the trouble with nationalisation, as might happen now, is that you can't quite recreate that situation. You'd have some sort of bastardised form of uh, renationalization, which would be better than what we've got. So what you could have is an overall authority, which is already kind of been named, which is called Great British Railways. I would just call it British Railways. And they could run the operations, the the train services. They could own the track and uh, infrastructure, but they wouldn't quite have all the powers that the old uh, British Rail had. They, They wouldn't kind of have that independence from the government that is absolutely necessary to be effective. Would it be very expensive to do it? Because it's interesting to consider whether re- the objections to this kind of semi-renationalisation would be ideological or financial. No, it's absolutely ideological, right? It doesn't cost anything. The franchises, which uh, the system which operated uh, until uh, COVID hit from uh, basically 1997 to 2020, were uh, operated by private companies on the basis of what's called revenue risk. In other words, they took all the fares and any extra pound they would get from their passengers, they kept. But that system uh, fell apart clearly when uh, the railways fell to 5% of its uh, previous usage. And clearly, if you're taking the revenue risk of that, you've got no more revenue. And so the state had to intervene and basically take over all the franchises. And then they kind of re-let them or or, uh, had new arrangements whereby the franchisees just ran the trains uh, for a fee, a management fee, say about 2% is the average of uh, the revenue goes to them to run the trains and the rest goes back to uh, government. So there is nothing to take back, right? If you just take back the operations, all there is are these contracts which you can allow to, to run out. So it wouldn't cost anything to take the operations back. Network rail is already in state hands anyway. So you could integrate the two and run a much better railway service by integrating the two than you do at the moment, whereby the operators are still semi-privatized, still have 
a confrontational relationship with network rail that involves contracts and payments one way or another, depending on delays and so on, um, and uh, network rail. So you could you could kind of have that as a new structure, which would be part, uh, partly or mainly renationalized without costing the taxpayer any money. So you've got to ask yourself, why the hell doesn't the government just do that? Because, uh, Ros, <laughs> the, the government is a Tory government that is absolutely ideologically opposed to this idea. Now, their problem, of course, is that they can't really recreate the old franchise system because rail usage has gone up maybe to 70, 75% of what it was before, but the risks are just too great. I mean, would there be another pandemic? Uh, you know, will the the commuters come back or, you know, will people start to, to use the railways again more or, or not? The risks are just too great to kind of reprivatize it. So they are at the moment, and this is happening at this very moment in the Department for Transport, there is a big debate about what to do. Because the original idea, after the the collapse of the virtual collapse of the rail network in May 2018, when there was a new timetable introduced, that led to a report which was originally called the Williams Report, it's now called the, the Williams Schatz Report because of the Transport Secretary at the time insisted on putting his name on it as well. And that essentially created something called Great British Railways. Now, the debate is what powers will this Great British Railways have? And on the one hand, uh, according to the report, it says, well, it should run everything. It should run the timetable. It should ensure what uh, rolling stock is used wherever. It should uh, run network rail. It should control everything. And then there are people within the Tory party who object to that because they see that as a state-run organisation that they don't like, and they want the private sector to retain a role. The trouble is, if you have the private sector retaining a role, then you get into all the complexities that got them into the trouble in May 2018 when the, the, the network virtually collapsed because the train operators were trying to run too many trains on a timetable that wasn't feasible and hadn't probably been worked out by Network Rail. And we're getting we're risking getting back to that situation. So there is this debate taking place. We don't know what the what the answer is. There's no clear kind of way forward because they can't just simply bring back the franchising system, as I explained, because it's too much risk, but they don't want to create an entirely state-owned, state-run company because that runs counter to Tory ideology. So there is paralysis, and that is contributing towards the chaotic state of the railways at the moment, as well as the industrial relations uh, problems. And the Great British Railways plan was going to simplify ticketing, wasn't it? Which is one of the most egregious aspects of the way the railways work at the moment. Yes, it was. But boy, is that forgotten about. You know, nobody's talking about that, even though the ticketing system is geared towards peak usage at certain time being very expensive and off-peak usage being much cheaper. Now, the trouble is, there is no longer such a pronounced peak, uh, particularly in terms of commuting, but even in terms of uh, longer distance, people are much more flexible. They've discovered, you know, even business people have discovered that, well, they can have a meeting on Zoom at kind of nine o'clock and then take a 10.30 train, uh, which will be much cheaper than the 8.30 train and so on. So this whole notion of peak and off-peak has been disrupted by COVID. And 
the system is crying out for a radical change with sort of maybe just having standard fares during the day. Maybe one idea I've had is you could have kind of trains that cost 10% extra or 20% extra and you could advertise them as such. And then you'd have a, a coherent system whereby you'd have a low basic fare with maybe some kind of a peak additions at key times. Another idea is maybe that to attract people back to the railways, you just have a hundred pounds maximum fare for any single journey, right? And now, now at the moment, for example, if you if you turn up at Euston at eight o'clock in the morning and want to get to Manchester, it's two hundred and sixty or two hundred and eighty pounds, which is completely ludicrous, right? You know, you you could hire a taxi almost for that amount of money. So there needs to be some innovation, but there's nobody to do it. If there's one fundamental thing that you know explains the malaise in the railway industry at the moment is that there is nobody in charge, right? Because the Department for Transport is, uh, you know, hamstrung by what the Treasury wants. Uh, the Treasury is kind of insistent on demanding cuts that are impossible. The train, the privatised train uh, operating companies are really at the mercy of what uh, the ministers and civil servants want them to do. They've got no scope for innovation. And uh, there's nobody actually able to make the big decisions. We've had three different transport secretaries last year. Uh, we now have somebody new in post, Mark Harper. He is, by all accounts, a, a reasonable guy who understands things, but is you know learning on the job. And of course, he is hamstrung by the Tory ideology, which basically says we cannot have a state-run, controlled. Uh, organization, we have to have the private sector involved, and we have to have, uh, you know, some incentives to the private sector. And once you go down that route, you get down back to the situation where apparently there are 400 people employed somewhere by Network Rail and various train operating companies determining delays and attributing the delay, the causes of delay, whether it's another train operator, a freight operator, whether it's the Network Rail and so on attributing those delays and kind of then charging the, the the money that is taken away in penalties by the department for uh, delays. So that whole complexity is still there. But worse, we, we the private companies no longer have an incentive to boost numbers. Nobody's in charge and the Treasury is kind of trying to force through cuts, which are impossible. And is that paralysis in the Department of Transport one of the reasons why we've had strikes for months now, which at the time of recording have not been resolved? And I'm sure they're not likely to be uh, resolved by the time you broadcast this either. <laughs> I've been doing uh, uh, interviews on, on these strikes for the last six months and, and basically I'm a bit like a parrot just repeating it uh, all over again, you know, what, what, what's gone wrong. And uh, that certainly... The fact that uh, the Department for Transport might want certain solutions, but it's been leaned on by heavily by the Treasury, which in turn is probably being leaned on heavily by Number 10, is not helping matters. But also, the problem is that they've tried to link in two completely different things in the industrial relations negotiations, which is the pay rise. Which, which clearly people who have not had a pay rise for three years and we got inflation at 10%, they need a pay rise. And they're not actually asking for inflation. They would be quite happy with probably something like 5 6 7%. Uh, you know, various smaller deals have been made at that level. So they would be happy with that. But the trouble is 
the, the Department for Transport, or probably leaned on by the Treasury, and I say leaned on itself by number 10, is demanding productivity increases to go with that pay rise. And that's a, a mistake because in the past, generally, British Rail, which shed 10,000 jobs for every year of its 50-year existence, so it went from 650 to 150,000 uh, jobs over its 50-year history, did a lot of negotiating away kind of old-fashioned practices. But it, by and large, did not tie this in. There was some exception, but by and large, did not tie it in with productivity rises, which, in effect, only affect kind of a few of the of the staff anyway. A lot of the staff, they can't kind of improve their productivity. You know, if you're standing on a platform, you're either standing on the platform or you're not standing on the platform. You know, mixing the two in has been the, the, the barrier and that could be resolved quite quickly, but there's no sign yet, so far, that uh, the government is prepared to uh, negotiate those two things separately. And so we are stuck. We are at an impasse, um, and it's kind of déjà vu all over again. Let's talk about Avanti West Coast because a lot of the train companies have problems, but Avanti is probably the one with the biggest. Oh, do we have to? Avanti is the kind of market leader in kind of uh, what I think is termed a shit show. It goes back to the fact that this is a relatively new franchise, which is shared between uh, First Group and Trenitalia. From all accounts, what I hear is that the relations between staff and management have just completely broken down in the, in that company. The key problem for them is that uh, Virgin, their predecessors, never negotiated away uh, the rest day working agreement. So in other words, on Saturdays and Sundays, they are, particularly Sundays, they are dependent on the goodwill of uh, drivers volunteering for overtime. And they get paid kind of, you know, time and a half or time and three quarters, whatever. They're well rewarded for it, but they're dependent on that. Now, drivers get quite a lot of money. They, they're kind of 65, 70 grand is, is their basic pay. So they don't really need this rest day working. They can probably, you know, feed their, their families quite well on their, their basic wages. And when relations between management and staff uh, broke down with the takeover advantage, I'm not quite sure why, but I'm told that there used to be regular meetings between the two and these were scrapped and that some new managers came in demanding productivity increases and, and so on. Who knows? But when relations broke down, basically the driver said, well, we're not working on these rest days. That means that they can't run a lot of services and they've had to cut back on the number of services that uh, they've operated. They don't have enough drivers to run a basic service uh, without that rest day working. So that's been one of the factors. But I think there's more to that. I mean, it's noticeable. I was on an Avanti train uh, uh, recently as well. It was noticeable that somebody came around and checked my ticket, which I didn't I didn't actually have a ticket for reasons that I tried to buy a ticket and the machine wouldn't work, wouldn't accept my card. And there was nothing I could do but get on the train, despite the fact that somebody tried to stop me, which is, again, kind of 
a part of the whole uh, way that the rail industry is being run. You know, the guy should have said, look, yeah, of course you can, you know, you can't buy a ticket by the machine, get on the train and buy a ticket. But anyway, and it was notable that I did actually get my ticket checked. And this was the first time in about four or five Avanti trips that I've actually had over the last two or three months where they've checked my ticket. Um, and, you know, that's all part of what I've called in my, I write a column for a magazine called Rail, and I've called it the nobody gives a damn railway. That phrase kind of caught on and people, uh, wrote, lots of people wrote to me and said, God, you've exactly expressed what this is all about. It's a nobody gives a damn railway. There's nobody in charge. The managers have sort of given up because the private companies no longer get, have an incentive to check the tickets because they don't get the revenue any longer. The the Treasury and the Department of Transport are not on the ground kind of making sure that this sort of thing happens and that people should check your tickets. And there's a whole feeling of malaise that I think the staff feel somewhat abandoned. The managers feel that they're up against impossible bureaucracy at the Department for Transport and the Treasury. The Department for Transport is squeezed by the Treasury. The Treasury, as we know, has never run anything in its life and therefore kind of only looks at how much money is coming in and, and doesn't think commercially at all. And number 10 seems intent on keeping going industrial relations disputes because they feel that this is damaging for labor. So, you know, we've got the perfect storm and there seems to be no way out of it at the moment. How are other countries managing these post-COVID changes? Are our other European countries staying at home in the numbers that we are? I mean, generally on Fridays, the commuting numbers are extremely low, aren't they now? Are we seeing the same thing in Europe? And if we are, how are they dealing with it? A bit, yes. There's certainly kind of instances of this. But I think in several European countries, there's been much more proactive attempts to get people back onto the railways. So uh, in Spain, they've been running a lot of uh, services and, and basically saying it's for free or, or very cheaply. Uh, in Germany, they had this nine euro a month thing, which they're now replacing, but they're still having some some uh, special deals. If you buy a, a monthly ticket, it's still much cheaper than it was before and so on. And so because they have big state-owned railways, which are despite all the efforts of the EU to kind of uh, stop them having control, they still have a large state involvement. And because most of these countries have policies, uh, wider environmental policies that you know, want people to use the railways because it's environmentally kind of better. They are then able to implement these sort of policies and uh, take the financial hit if there is any. We've done one very good one in Britain, actually, which is, but not on the railways. We've got this £2 buff fare. Right, which is not applying inside London, but it is lots, large swathes of the country elsewhere, and already anecdotal evidence uh, suggests that you know, in some cases, despite that there might be affairs up to four or five pounds, anecdotal evidence suggests that in some cases they've been getting more revenue in at two pounds because so many more people are, are using the buses. 
Um, and it, that sort of initiative is desperately needed on the railways in this in, in this country as well as abroad to attract people back. You know, let's let's have, as I suggested earlier, either you know a hundred pound maximum fare, or you could kind of have, you know, old British Rail can, you know, got much criticised for its lack of commercial nous, but it used to give away cheap tickets with cornflakes. Right, you used to get uh, if you had a couple of packets of cornflakes, you'd get uh, send off a voucher, and that would give you a two for one offer on on intercity services. I mean, you know, where is that sort of commercial incentive uh, in this country? You know, it, it just at the moment we just have this state of paralysis and a, a declining system. And I, I just wish I could kind of project some good news, and and I can't at the moment until the industrials relations issue has been sorted out. I can't see how the structural issues will be sorted out, and I can't see how you know, any initiative will come from uh, the Department for Transport to, to kickstart the railways kind of post-COVID. Well, there we have it. We have plenty of ideas for how to fix this crisis in the railways, but unfortunately, the government is not interested and not listening. Nonetheless, Christian, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. You can support the bunker, if not the railways, by sending a few of the pounds you used to spend on train tickets to us to keep us going. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this Railcorp service, calling it Harrison, Jarvis, Gerbertson, Tomashevich, Richard and Parrot. My name is Alex, I'll be your driver until the next stop, where I will depart the train to strike. Customers are welcome to visit our shop in Coach E for a selection of cold drinks and... Uh, cold drinks... Two cheese sandwiches with plenty of mayo and half a Twix. If you'd like to use the toilet in Coach B, I'd give it five minutes. Mm-hmm.